0: Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce. Welcome to my channel, and my channel, because I have two of them now. I have tried to bifurcate my streams uh, in response to my childhood experience of the Ghostbusters movie. Today's guest, because this is an interview, is Jonathan Church, who is an author and an economist. He has been researching very thoroughly and writing some very well-argued articles about the fragility of Robin D'Angelo's white fragility concept. We spoke last fall about this fragility and we get back into it again and get a little bit more thorough into what makes Robin D'Angelo's argument and the critical race argument and the whiteness studies arguments really suspect, not just on a moral level, we do get into the moral level, but on an intellectual level. So if you're wondering why this kind of doesn't feel like a good idea, you probably have good reason to feel that way. And if you don't want to watch two guys arguing about this point, well, White fragility already has you covered because you don't have to listen to us because everything we speak is in defense or defensiveness of our own fragility. Anyways, that's a bullshit argument, and we'll get into why that is a bullshit argument, but I'm sure I'm going to get those comments down in that comment field. Here you go. Here's Jonathan Church. Have you uh, done any uh, more interviews since ours back in, I guess it was September. It might have been, I think it was September, maybe October.
1: Uh, (laughs) I actually just had a radio interview yesterday, um, although that was on a different topic. Uh, Well, somewhat related, dealing a little bit with social justice stuff, but mainly in in relation to Stoicism, which I've written about a few times.
0: Okay. What's the radio program?
1: uh, I don't know the name of the... the, Or if there's like a a brand, but the woman's name was Leslie Doris, and uh, she... um, conducts this uh i don't know if it's weekly um i assume it's weekly but it's a program that deals with things like having to do with relationships and that sort of thing okay and uh,
0: stoicism fits into putting up with a significant other
1: i guess so we we and yeah <clears throat> you know we um by the way have we started the interview or are we just uh, we're kinda...
0: gonna we're just gonna cut in when gets yeah, okay. interesting
1: <laughs> oh okay so we're so we're interviewing then <laughs>
0: yeah we're just running
1: okay um yeah <clears throat> so um you know i wrote an article in it in in uh january for quillette um and just having to do with stoicism and brain cancer because i have a uh i had a brain tumor i was dead diagnosed with last year and um hmm. had surgery had a surgery and uh and um uh you know just writing about how uh you know, I was pretty stoic about it. You know, it, when I first got the news, I was—I said uh, to the doctor, "Congratulations," because they, you know, it'd been a bit—a few months run-up to that, trying to figure out why I had gone into the emergency uh, with sort of seizure-like spasms. Um, this would have been December 2017. Anyway, um, whole bunch of tests over about two or three months, and then somebody—you know this doctor. Recommended MRA, and they figured it out. And you know, I don't know. I just have a stoic approach to a lot of things. Um, hmm. So it's it's kind of a philosophical perspective I've cultivated over some time. And so I wrote about it in January when the APA guidelines came out, criticizing "quote unquote" traditional masculinity.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, one of one of those aspects being so called stoicism. And so I just sort of wrote about how. Um, uh, I guess the title was how my uh, quote-unquote toxic stoicism helped me cope with brain cancer. Um, yeah. So yeah, and you know, I, like I remember going in the operating room, one of my sisters saying, "Like uh, you look like you just they just gave you a valium," you know. So I was pretty, uh, you know, I don't know, stoic, calm, that sort of thing. Okay. And so yeah. So anyway, that read I, I wrote that, and then I wrote another one for the uh, Good Men Project, which I sort of carried on the same. Perspective, but but criticizing the Gillette co- commercial, and uh, basically making the point that it was conflating being a decent human being with being a good man, um, and so again, sort of tackling that whole, you mm-hmm. know, the whole issue around norms of masculinity, and that's the one that she picked up on, and so she invited me to come onto the show and talk about it.
0: Is stoicism in its kind of? Uh, it, its low resolution aspect is thought of as some sort of <laughs> re- removal or hardness, and I guess that was what the completely misguided APA guidelines were pointing to when they used that word. But those guidelines themselves just y- use language with no respect whatsoever for a number of different terms. But
1: yeah, it's it's sort so, of like so being an emotional. Th- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: No, it's it It has to do with like being a hard-shelled, uh, not feeling anything or suppressing your emotions. There's a removal aspect to it.
1: The basic distinction I draw is between emotional restraint and emotional repression. Uh, the latter being the thing that you want to avoid, the former being something that you can cultivate. In fact, uh, stoicism, as I understand it, is uh, it, part of the underlying basis of cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. So there's actually... Um, I mean, there's more to it, too, and I'm not a, psycho- a psychologist, but from what I've read and heard, uh, uh, CBT is actually draws upon Stoic philosophy. And so, you know, uh, the APA guidelines, I think, are addressing sort of a layman's understanding of sort of what they call powering through, like a soldier getting through war and that sort yeah. of thing. Um, but my whole problem was that it reeks of social ju- justice ideology, um, which is, of course, not to say that, you know, I always want to qualify, because when you say something like that, uh, you you end up being depicted in one way or another. I mean, you know, social justice has its virtues. In fact, there was a very good ar- article in Aereo a couple of days ago, uh, a de- defense of social justice. And I just want to you know, sort of put in that qualifier because, you know, I'm pretty critical of the social justice movement, but it doesn't mean, but, but I'm not social, I'm not critical of quote unquote social justice. Mm -hmm. It seems like,
0: well, and the adherence of social justice don't do us any favors with this, but it seems like it's very easy to use it as a euphemism for something negative, social justice, in the same exact way that we use stoic, (laughs) as a euphemistic principle yeah. when there's like this underlying philosophy or uh i guess world worldview that is underpinning it that is very carefully thought through by the people who forged it and put it together um but there's nothing uh more i don't think there's anything more abusive to social justice than the social justice uh the people who who claim that mantle and then run with it so in, in many
1: ways that, that there is could be a lot of work out
0: yeah there could be a lot of work done to to suss that out, to kind of sequester the abusers of that term in order to to take what's good out of that stuff. And that brings me to, I guess, the nominal question uh, about our this current interview and our first interview, which was about Robin DiAngelo and white fragility. And since then, you've written at least two articles about it, but I see in the latest article you link to four other ones. So you've written about this quite a bit
1: yep yeah, let's see uh one two three four sort of five six seven articles
0: yeah uh, oh, if i'm geez, if i'm not okay.
1: missing one <laughs> so yeah, okay. one was a very long one uh i mean they're <laughs> all you know one was i think a thirty five minute read um but that was more on uh both white fragility as a and whiteness studies in general uh, white white fragility f- uh, theory as a derivative of whiteness studies uh, and basically arguing that it succumbs to the so-called reification fallacy. Uh, but okay. yes, um, and we can get into that. But yes, I've been uh, uh, pouring through um, what I guess people call white fragility white fragility theory.
0: Um, could for. Th- for me, and perhaps some of my viewers, what is the reification fallacy?
1: So the idea of reification is uh, to, to treat a uh, an abstraction, an abstract concept, as having a concrete or material existence. Um, for example, uh, if you kind of Google this and you come up with some uh, explanations, you could say something like, and I, re- I remember this because it's from... Um, Mad Men, which is one of my favorite shows, but uh, in season one, uh, Don Draper said at one point, uh, the universe is indifferent. And the universe, I guess you could think of as somewhat of an abstract concept, although I guess, I don't know, you could think of it as the, the stars and the galaxies, but yeah. the universe being some kind of cosmos, some kind of, you know, a, you know, if you're thinking about it um, in some metaphysical sense or whatever, um, it's an abstraction, it doesn't actually come take on this perfection. Uh, quality of being indifferent. It's not a person, so it's a, it's an abstraction taking on. And yeah, um, but with respect to whiteness studies, white r- with rigil- fragility theory, um, the best way I think about it is uh, because in some sense it draws a bit on the Marxist tradic- tradition, um, and by that I mean just the idea of uh, superstructure and exploitation and that sort of thing and power structures. Um, but in uh, <laughs> Sometime in the 1920s, George Lukacs, he wrote The uh, History of Class Consciousness, and he describes reification as essentially um, a, quote-unquote, phantom objectivity, where uh, ideology, the commodity structure, commodity Mm. relations, uh, I guess you could say commodify um, or materialize these sort of invisible relations between capitalists and workers. And so the commodity structure which underlies capitalist economy um, is in some sense the material embodiment of exploitation exploitative relations between capitalists and workers and he works this out um, mm-hmm. but uh, he but he uh, I think the phrase phantom objectivity kind of um, conveys the point mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, another way of thinking of it is the fallacy of misplaced concreteness and um, and uh, some other fancil terms. But so,
0: hopefully, with regards to the white fragility construct, how is that a phantom objectivity?
1: Uh, well, that requires a little bit of uh, fleshing out the uh, <coughs> some of the basic uh, views of uh, whiteness studies in general. And uh,
0: <sighs> you say views, so you you don't mean they're axioms or. Uh, precepts they are
1: they actually are you can think of them as as axioms um well precepts uh yeah you have i I guess you know you kind of have to be careful i mean they 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 function as axioms um because for instance uh so one of the authors who's very uh, instrumental uh in this uh pioneering uh scholars a woman named ruth frankenberg um and uh she wrote a book right here um oh. called the social construction of white woman whiteness race matters and so on so proof that i've read the book um <laughs> wait i need anyway, to see at least you need to
0: show the camera at least one unlo- underlined sentence or else you could have oh. just bought that book book off Amazon. Uh, actually, uh, that was just a joke. We do Well,
1: to fair enough. But I actually <laughs> quoted in the article the essay that I wrote. Okay. But um, at any rate, uh, the let me get the let me just bring up an actual uh, quote. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a uh, photo photographic memory. Um, so, uh, D'Angelo uh, likes to quote her quite often. And what she describes – so Franken- Frankenberg defines whiteness as, quote, a location of structural advantage, of race privilege. Uh, second, it's a standpoint, a place from which white people look at ourselves, at others, mm-hmm. and at so- society. Uh, third, it re- re- whiteness, it refers to a set of – cultural practices that are usually unmarked and unearned and so then d'angelo goes on says it's therefore conceptualized as a constellation of processes and processes rather than as a discrete entity that is skin color Um, it's dynamic relational operating at all times and on myriad levels so on and so forth. And then she goes on to talk about white fragility. But the idea here is that there's this ideology or discourse. You can distinguish between ideology and discourse, but for for, for our purposes there, you can treat them as essentially the same. And Mm -hmm. that whiteness is a kind of centripetal ideology where it draws everything into uh, white norms, social constructs, and so on. That... uh, you know, for instance, Toni Morrison saying that all of American literature positions the reader as white. Um, there was a uh, article in the Met Paris Review recently by Yeah, Venetian. I saw that. Yeah, so uh, white, white people need to serve uh, save themselves from whiteness. Yeah. Um, there was another uh, piece that came out by a woman named Sophia Lung. Uh, how whiteness is is um, is embodied yeah, the in, in, the, in the books in the library. Now, <clears throat> you know, I don't know how strictly or rigid I want to be about this, but the idea is that whiteness is embodied in the fact. I mean, and, and they are quite clear about saying that whiteness is not white people themselves.
0: it's yeah. as, as
1: you just heard, it's not skin color. But yeah. to be white in our society is to uh, unavoidably partake in social norms, relationships, habits, customs that reinforce a culture of white supremacy, and of yeah. course by by that they mean sort of relations between groups. You know the relation between say the dominant group, white people, and the not-dominant group, whether it's people of color, LGBT, so on, right? Uh, Cis versus LGBT, white, people of color, man, uh, woman. Um, But there are these relationships between groups, between people, and that they are uh, structured in very rigid ways, rid well, not rigid because they, they, they'll say that this is very dynamic. Um, yeah. and that it's con- uh, constantly evolving. Um, but the, they're rigid in the sense that they constantly reinforce dominance. And so you have this kind of abstract notion of whiteness, which more or less if, refers to beliefs, va- values, habits, norms, all these things that we do in life. Um, and they reinforce Uh, White supremacy because they are part of whiteness. Now, it's important to emphasize that what they're not saying is that, you know, we live in 19th century America. It's not, um, you know, it's not uh, that, you know, the the laws protect, uh, you know. uh, uh, Yeah. They, 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 they don't legalize discrimination. We've made massive shifts, you know, explicit, mean, uh, yeah. racist attitudes. That's not what they're talking about. They're just saying that as long as we are white and we are not sort of exposing our, or admitting our fragility and all that, that we are reinforcing cultural norms uh, that, <clears throat> that keep a system of dominance in place. Okay. And, and so to, just to recapitulate, whiteness is the abstraction. And the sort of materialization of whiteness is us participating in society, either by taking books off the library that position the reader as white um, or uh, just, you know, going to work and reading a resume and uh, seeing uh, a black name and thinking that uh, or uh, inherently assuming that that person is less qualified, you know, sort of things like that. Yeah. So the. One and that, thing that, that is told I... by philosophers as a reification fallacy. It's metaphorically it's very colorful, but it does not hold up as a logical proposition.
0: Okay, so what makes it not hold up as a logical proposition then? What is what is the fundamental weakness of that jump of logic? Because it's very captivating.
1: Well, I mean, essentially, uh, if you take, for example, uh, the idea that. Um, uh, you know, as I was saying, uh, Tony Morrison saying that all American literature positions you as white. Well, take her novel, a uh, song of Solomon, which is a very good novel. And Tony Morrison is an excellent novelist and it's about a guy, a kid, a guy named Macon dead new junior. And he's exploring, uh, um, throughout the story, uh, these sort of mysteries of family conflicts between his mother or his father and his father's sister um, and various other sorts of uh, conflicting relationships. And so uh, the story to me is very much driven by that plot line. Now, it certainly – and by the way, you can hear me just fine, right? Yeah, we're all good uh now it certainly does uh take place in Jim crow america and function and and takes place in interplay with jim crow America but to read this as essentially a foil uh against which you can underst in other words to read this simply as a racial narrative is to in some sense not read the story in its full complexity in its full mm. reality in,
0: mm-hmm. in its
1: full sort of material or mm. uh you know it, it's it's I don't know, fullness or whatever. It's, it's
0: possibility of meaning more than just that one interpretation.
1: Uh, that's one way that I, that I think about it. Also, uh, you know, um, you know the, the notion that whiteness is on the shelves in the library. Uh, so whiteness is conceived as, uh, you know, attitudes, perceptions, a frame of reference. But when you pick up a book in the library... Uh, Say Shakespeare's plays. What the hell is right? White about that just because he's white. I mean, Mm -hmm. sure, white Shakespeare is a white author, yeah. But uh, picking that up off the shelf and reading uh, Shakespeare in some sense reinforces something called whiteness, yeah. uh, That really doesn't hold up as a matter of logic.
0: So they have this term called whiteness or this concept of whiteness that they are trying to retroactively fit to every cultural product that pours out of Europe or everything that resonates in harmony with everything that pours out of Europe. It seems like a very convenient way of just classifying everything as something that you don't have to take seriously or you can just suspect. It's, it goes back to uh, Ricour's uh, uh, what, what, what does he call it? Uh, the, the hermeneutics of suspicion. So you you're automatically free to be suspicious of this stuff and not really engage with it in the fullness of what it could teach you, what what it could expand within you, but rather it is something that is purely trying to exert a dominant hierarchy.
1: Yeah, um uh, I you know, I want to be very careful about how I uh convey this. Um Okay. because I don't want to trivialize uh, what it is that they're what they're trying to uh, position. Critique. I think it's it okay. yeah, I, I think it's um, how do I say this? Um, D'Angelo's, one of her one of her starting point is I am white. I have a white for racial frame. I look at things as a white person, and that makes me essentially racist. I'm complicit in a sort of. Uh, racist society simply by virtue of being white, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And the reason that that the, the reasoning behind that, if you can call it reasoning, is that uh, whiteness is conceived as relationships. It's conceived as uh, hmm. social norms, yeah. habits. And so um, i trying to think of the best way to how to, best way to convey this point that um, I feel like I kind of got ahead of my thoughts here. Um,
0: it just there, one, one way that I, I am confused about it is that it seems like they're just replacing the word domination or norm or any sort of behavior that, uh, implements order as whiteness there. You could just replace whiteness with these basic terms and whiteness kind of just dissolves because you yeah, right. I'm like not disagreeing with term, like, with
1: what you're saying, I'm okay. not disagreeing with but you're what trying you're to, saying. Okay. And, and, and I think that the reason I, 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 was sort of pausing there is that, uh, I probably was trying to overthink the, the matter a little bit. Um, I mean, I think it's really quite simple. Uh, An abstraction is not a reality or a material reality. That material existence is actually much more complicated. And when you start to think about things in terms of whiteness, it sort of simplifies your understanding of reality and therefore leads to a lot of misconceptions that sort of lead you to sort of,
0: Hmm. I don't
1: know, things like confirmation bias. Um, It leads you to sort of frame the world in a way that might not reflect its full complexity.
0: Okay. So my original question was, since you've spent so much time studying this, what are the good things to salvage out of this? Or how has this made reality fuller for you or more filled with possibility? Even if it's uncomfortable possibility? Have you learned anything? Or is there anything that, that we can learn?
1: <laughs> From white fragility theory?
0: From white studies, white fragility theory.
1: In what sense? Well, I mean, I, there's a lot that I could say that I today today to, to, date, to date that. I mean, um, but uh, I mean, are you saying is there something positive that I've learned? Is, have I learned that it's ultimately all bunk? Um, uh, yeah, I guess. Okay, um, well, I mean, yeah. I, I could go in a lot of different directions with this. Yeah. OK. Uh, well,
0: I mean, my basic strategy just to hold my cards is to say that I know that it's a bad idea. And I've seen the results of this theory uh, taken to their extreme at the Evergreen State College. Like they enshrined white fragility. When George Bridges landed, he implemented a system of of governance that was based on this theory of white fragility. I know it has a bad outcome. I want to stop that bad outcome from, from getting to its full potential. So I think one of the ways to disarm it is to agree with it. In order to disagree with it. So what are the strengths of it and where does it go wrong? right? what what, are, what why is it so attractive to people?
1: Okay, I see. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the way that I um, would summarize the worldview or the theory of white fragility is to say <clears throat> that, in a sense, by having us this conversation, we are being we are a manifestation of white fragility yeah we're going to get comments
0: we will get comments yeah
1: um and so in a sense you could think of white fragility as essentially having this conversation now the way i think about having this conversation is taking a critical look at white fragility its assumptions its claims its implications uh essentially seeing whether they hold up under scrutiny. Now the white fragility crowd, Delangelo and whatever, they'll just sort of scoff at this because for them, they've got it all figured out. Mm, and okay. so any kind of resistance is essentially, um, it, you know, any kind of resistance that they encounter is essentially dismissed as being defensive and, and fragile. Uh, and in a sense, um, you know, you can understand this because she's done a lot of work uh, over the years doing diversity training seminars, classrooms. She's written a lot of papers. She's sort of, I guess you could say, uh, schooled. Some might say indoctrinated in all of this. And so she really believes in this. And I do think that she's quite sincere about what she's saying um, and and in her belief in, in all this. And so she gets, you know – at First, she was probably quite troubled, pr- quite disturbed to encounter such hostility or resistance or whatever. She would probably say it's hostility. Um, uh, the problem is that ultimately, she. I think that uh, she just doesn't make a good argument. It doesn't hold up. Um, it's a very weak theory for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I think the first indication that this that you get of this is that. Um. Uh. She doesn't argue; she asserts. She hasn't really, seen
0: one. I've not seen one debate with her. She never in in uh, enters into a discussion about this with anybody who doubts it.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, she. Uh, she doesn't. Th- Frame this in terms of an a, a hypo or any of her claims as a sort of hypothesis that can be tested. There's no okay. sense of falsification. There's no sense that um, that you can that you can argue. The idea that any time that you don't sort of uh, go along and admit your fragility and then try to tease out what that fragility is, then you're simply being defensive. You're not you're not engaging in debate. You're not discuss. You're not engaging in discussion. You're being. Uh, <clears throat> And there's a very Orwellian aspect to that. There's a very Kafkaesque sort of uh, 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 aspect to that. Now, uh, take, for instance, this thing that came out yesterday that I saw people on Twitter talking about. I'm trying to find a a quote of this. Um, Yeah. So she was talking about this sort of exhibit, uh, to exhibit defensiveness, you know, to sort of... Not sort of acknowledge your racism as a white person and that sort of thing, you know. And again, this all this all presupposes an understanding of racism. Okay, so uh-huh. uh, uh, this that that's something that we should we should address. I mean, she has a very specific understanding of white of what racism is, basically, you know, just systemic just, just disparities and that sort of thing. But um, to be defensive about this is, is, you know, when somebody comes up and and tells you about what white fragility is about and what racism is about, and you sort of object. Um, this is supposedly putting on abor- a burden on you know her people of all color, whatever. Um, it's what she calls weaponized tears or weaponized defensiveness.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: ultimately, white racial bullying. Now, the problem with that is, is <laughs> it? the The problem with that is, you see, what I think this reflects ultimately is is her the influence of pro pro structuralism on her that this is a this is what you think of as sort of rhetorical bullying. It's it's yeah. not it's not really making. Um, and I wanted to say an objective statement, but the problem I, I, I hesitate to say that because, and this is something that we should also address, she has all sorts of problems with the notion of objectivity, which itself is fallacious, yeah. by the way. She basically uh, confuses objectivity with neutrality. But anyway, um, she's not interested in the language of agree or disagree. In fact, I know I've seen her in an interview, I think in one of my, Mike Naina's Uh, videos, I heard her say that, you know, I'm not really, I don't really like the agree, disagree uh, language. Um, And I might be mistaken that, but I believe I, anyway, she's not interested in that language, if you will. It's really all about reframing. It's about reframing. You see this with the Jackie Robinson narrative that she brings up with which itself is very factually um, problematic. But The issue is to use language in a way that sort of reflames our way of thinking about this. So if we reject, we are engaging in white racial bullying. We are not engaging in scrutiny or critique. We are engaging in white racial bullying. And, of course, that becomes very, very problematic um, because what you end up having is what I call the fragility trap, which is, as I wrote at one point, uh, if you disagree, you're being defensive. If yep. you read all of her work, give it due consideration and disagree, you're being defensive. Yeah. If you say, okay, let's argue on the merits, same answer. So you see there's no way out. It's complete. Yeah. It's either you submit to indoctrination, okay? Yeah. And then, of course, uh, you know, that that uh, has a sort of uh, – twin sister or brother or whatever in 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 the form of what you might call the fragility cult which is basically all Mm. of the people who buy into this um and that is that if you defend the idea then uh um you know you're manifesting your fragility so you know the trap the cult whatever you want to call it but the issue is that any sort of and a good faith i mean look i'm sure that there's you know, she writes, uh, what the first chapter, maybe the second chapter, I think it's pages 10, 11, 12 on her book. Uh, yeah. In fact, this is one of the articles I wrote about that. And she talks about how, you know, when she talks about racism, that the, um, reactions of white people are so predictable that she feels like she's reading for, we're all right. Reading from the same cultural, uh, the same script. And in some sense she says we are. Yeah. And then I wrote an article about this in uh, Aereo, uh, in which this whole section, which by the way has one, you know, well, anyway, I'll, never mind that. In this whole section, um, she's confusing uh, correlation with causation. So her argument is, okay, white people will say I'm an individual and this is my experience, and I don't think you take that into account, and. Uh, And they do that when she says, well, you're not an individual, you're part of a group, you have a white racial frame, there's that being white has meaning. Um, And, uh, you know, again, getting back to whiteness, if you will. Um, And, and this is where we can sort of get back into the white, the reification fallacy, by the way. Um, But the issue is you're white, you have a white uh, racial frame, and, um, and uh, that has meaning. And, uh, invariably, she encounters the reaction, well, but you don't understand, I have this experience and that experience, and my you know my experiences are unique. And she attributes this reaction to what she calls the ideology of individualism. Yeah, and she calls that an ideology. you know So she's basically drawing a connection between her challenge to individualism or I guess her saying that group matters and the reaction of white people that, well, you know, you're not taking into, into account the full complexity of this and that. And this comes up in papers that she's written too.
0: Have you seen any evidence of her doing the same thing when a black person refutes her claims of group identity over individuality?
1: Well, I, I can bring I can bring that up in a second. But the, the point that I would, to, to finish this point, uh, she says that the reason she adver- absor- observes this constant, connection is that we are socialized to believe in ourselves as individuals and that um, socialization is the mechanism by which this connection connection works but there's this uh there's old very famous idea called hume's fork uh referring to uh david hume uh, and his basic argument, the inquiry for human understanding, uh, understanding, if I, uh, if I said that right, um, is that all we can ever really observe is a, is a constant conjunction of, ex- of events. And that if you, if you really pour into this, you realize that we can never really infer something about the, the causality, um, of this, that the actual mechanism def- be depends on a certain sort of circular reason that falls apart, um. I don't know how much we want to get into this. It kind of gets into textual technical philosophy, but the point is that she. Presumes in her typical aura of, ignis- of omniscience yeah. that she understands why you react the way that you do, yeah. and it has to do with you being socialized in certain, certain ways. And we can get into that too, which is I, dis- I i don't think that she understands socialization as well as she claims to do. Okay. Um, so anyway, uh, the point—the the point here ultimately is that um, you know I wrote this article saying that she she uh, uh, that Hume's fork reveals that she mistakes correlation for causation. And of course, that exposes a whole other problem with her work having to do with her understanding of the scientific method and so on. But to get to your point about whether she's ever talked about a black, you know, whether she's, there's a paper in which she talks about a scenario in which um, they're talking about basic diversity training. And there's a white trainer and a black trainer. And I guess the white trainer, if I remember this correctly, went up and gave her spiel. And then the black trainer comes up and gives her spiel and uh all the people in the audience are 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 advised to stay quiet while you know they give the spiel and then after this is done a white woman i think in the audience raises her says well i think that you're you're not taking into account the full complexity of the situation and so on and the white trainer i don't know if it's d'angelo or somebody else tries to intervene and say she's being quote unquote problematic, which of course is problematic because, you know, the whole idea is that you want to have healthy exchange But at any rate. um, But she says you're being problematic. And at that point, a, I think it's a black man comes to the defense of the white woman and says, you know uh, you know, let her have her say or whatever. So she, he comes to the, you know, and then at, at that point, I think it's a black woman who then accuses the black man of internalized oppression or whatever. And basically the whole thing falls apart. And so I guess you could say that that's illustrative of how, uh, you know, if you take white fragility theory and all the things that it's trying to convey seriously – you can ultimately invalidate ironically enough the black man's view who's coming to the event to defense of a white woman who's simply trying to say i don't think this is taking into account the full complexity of the situation anyway i can send the paper to you i i read yeah. that I forget, I forget which paper it was at the at the moment but i remember that particular so anyway sorry i've gone on so, long enough to... no
0: absolutely this is wonderful so to reorient ourselves I, I really do think that the work that you're doing, and I'm gonna link to all 74 of your articles on this that you've done so far.
1: No seven, uh, seven articles. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Oh. Okay. I see. There'll be, well, the reason, there'll be ten the by I the time
0: confused. I publish this.
1: No, the reason I can confuse is because I've actually, in total, <laughs> I've published something like 75 or so essays. Okay. <laughs> <coughs> but,
0: but the thing is, is that I really do think that this is a this is a very dangerous way of thinking. It's very fragile, inherently very fragile. And that's what we talked about the first time. But the thing is, is that it it takes on the aura of strength when a crowd of people uh, go along with it. So somebody the other day, uh, somebody who's working on a Netflix series about five kids in some eastern U.S. city that got... uh, mistreated by the criminal justice system. She retweeted some quote by Robin D'Angelo that was basically this fragility trap where that if anybody questions what this is, that 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 very questioning is evidence that we are right. And and I went through the comments and there was just one person after another person after another person says, I have more to learn. I have more to learn. I have more to learn. And so it 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 at one point it pisses off the people who don't want to have anything to do with it, but it attracts people who have a certain psychology who want to be followers. It it, it attracts specifically sheep, And uh, wolves in sheep clothing. That's exactly what it does. It's a horrible ideology with regards to who adheres to it. And with our talk last time and with my first Robin D'Angelo video, the only criticism I received from those is that I am white. Of course, I would disagree with this. There's no actual substance to the actual argument. So what we need to do, I think what's really important to do is to give is to keep on exposing it as the weakness it is and then expose people to something better or a very, a disarming uh, way of dismantling this.
1: Let me go through, uh, real quickly so that, you know, we don't, I don't do this before we run out of time, but, um, uh, I'll run through. Cause look, uh, we, I think have, have made clear, uh, what I think all critics of white fragility theory understand which is that there's this trap and this culture is tel- cultish element to it. Um, but I don't think that's, what's going to ultimately make the case because yeah. it just, it just goes in circles. Yeah. Um, you're fragile. Well, you're not engaging, you're fragile and so on. So, yeah. um, but I think that it's pretty clear to those, you know, who aren't sort of indoctrinated in this, but you know, I try to make, I I mean, I've read all of her work. I've been thinking about this for a long time. I've made a good face. And I think that there are interesting questions that she raises. I think that on in page 54 of her book, when she talks about the burden of race, I think is a very good point. Um, and we can get into that, but let me just go through the basic critiques of white fragility theory right now. First, um, So, uh, listening, I guess the the first I, I, I don't I, I feel I fear that pre- presenting this sequentially sequentially in the way that I that I plan to do just because it's how I have it written, um, I might want I might otherwise want to reorganize this, but one is. Shut up and listen, right? That's basically one precept of white fragility theory. Now the problem with that is listening is fine, and I think I agree that we all need to be able to listen to each other and so on. But listening is at best a necessary condition for understanding; it is not at all sufficient. And yeah. the reason that I say that Absolutely. is, yeah, I you can listen all the. I mean, I could li, I could sit on and on a lecture on quantum mechanics and not understand anything. And similarly here, where it gets very complicated by human emotions and different concept, uh, assumptions and conceptions and so on. So I think that the first real critical mistake, um, that, uh, that she makes, um, is that she treats, uh, or white fragility theory in general treats, uh, listening as necessary and sufficient, and it's only necessary. Okay. So that's one. Um, That uh, and that problem that, by the way, has problems with respect to like due process and all that, too. Mm -hmm. Um, But that brings us into the intent versus effect idea is that for D'Angelo, you just got to do away with with intent. Uh, I think in the thing that went around yesterday, she was saying, uh, you know, we can't prove it. You you know, people are never going to admit their intent, whatever. And that really what matters is impact. And, you know, I don't have a problem with saying the impact matters, but I also think that in, the intent also matters. And this is sort of part of the back and forth, the interplay between, say, I guess, generally speaking, white and people of color or men and women or cis and trans, whatever, um, that we're i don't even like framing it just like she doesn't like to talk about agree disagree i don't like to think about things in terms of, of groups because contrary to her view i do believe in individualism if only because by individualism i mean that nobody can do my thinking for me yeah. So that's what i mean by that and by that, that's a quote from a uh, an interview i, I was recently uh, listening to on uh, john Locke. but anyway so um she's right that we need to listen and she's right that we need to consider impact and, and effect and that sort of thing. But she's not right that listening is, is both necessary and sufficient. And she's not right that we need to do away with intent. And I'll give you an example, which is going to take me to the next part, um, uh, which has to do with the whole understanding of racism and implicit bias. So um, there's a paper that was seminal in the development of the con- concept of microaggression. 2007, darrell Wing Sue a tall his other uh uh authors as well this paper arises i believe if i remember correctly from an anecdote that he r- conveyed in the paper about being on a plane with a uh, colleague and he was sitting down and it was one of these sort of um shuttle planes from like new york to boston or whatever so very small and so they sit down in, i guess the second or third row whatever <laughs> We immediately after a couple of white men came in and sat in the row in front of them, but then because the the the, the plane needed to be balanced, the flight attendant came and asked them, Daryl Wing Sue and his colleague if he could if they could go sit in the back to sort of even out the weight of the plane, hmm. and um, he didn't he didn't take to that very well. Um, he sort of took that as a sort of. Uh, Uh, indication of sort of, you know, what he ultimately called a microaggression, a racial insensitivity. And of course, the flight attendant was uh, offended by the implication that she was being discriminatory. Now, I'm not going to offer you any definitive conclusions on what happened there, because that's just a mess right there. Um, Who knows, right? Now, but the, the important point is that The flight attendant may or may not be right when she says I didn't have any intent on being discriminatory. Uh, In fact, the white men, if I remember correctly, sat in front of them. So it may have simply occurred to them nat- her naturally to ask the people in back of them to just go a little farther back. But who knows? It's all speculation. That's ultimately the point, is that this is very speculative. But the second thing to point out, which is a little bit more systematic in, in, in the nature of its inquiry, is to say, would you observe the same result if you did the same experiment over and over and over? In other words, would people who um, also were in that position also take a threat? And that's not necessarily the case. And that gives rise to this January 2017 paper by Scott Lillianfeld, who wrote uh, a review of the literature on microaggressions and basically said that, you know, we're only 10 years into this thing. We don't know as much as we think we know, and we should put a moratorium on microaggression training because we really don't know as much as we we, really think we do. And there's all sorts of problems in the research and he he spelled them out. One of the things he pointed out was something called negative emotionality, that you need to take that into account. Now take, for instance, me. I'm kind of reserved. I'm introverted. I can be grouchy, right? So if I'm at work and people are getting really loud, I get annoyed, you know? So that might just be uh, am I being microaggressed or am I am I just a grouch? You know, you need to be able to tease that stuff out, you know? Now, that's not to be dismissive of the fact that people are victims of insensitivities. And Lillian Lillian Feld himself says says that. Of course, we all know that there are racial insensitivities and all sorts of other insensitivities. But we cannot simply take one paper based on this little anecdote that's just 10 years old and then start just charging ahead as if we know all about microaggressions and what in the heck. They are. So, um, listening is not sufficient intent and effect both need to be taken into account. And then we get into the nature of her understanding of racism for her. The very fact of systemic inequities, disparities is itself racism. I argue that's a redefinition of racism, and that goes back to the reifying of whiteness. But, um, my understanding of racism, and I believe this is the historical traditional understanding, is that it's typological reductionism. It's essentially essentializing uh, a population, in this case, say African Americans in the 19th century, and saying that they all sort of, by all being, you know, having uh, dark skin color, that they all share in some essential trait that distinguishes them from white. So it's typological thinking. That's mm-hmm. racism. That's what racism has always been known, and so in arguing that racism is this sort of systemic structural inequity, is ultimately to confuse racism itself with the legacy of racism.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm
1: not. I am certainly not arguing that there is uh, a legacy of racism, this systemic, uh, or that there is not a legacy of racism. Systemic disparities exist. They are mm-hmm. here, and we've got to deal with them, and they are a legacy of racism, and we need to come to terms with that, and, there's, and there shouldn't be any doubt about that, right? But that's not racism. That's the re- legacy of racism, okay. and so by trying to redefine it as systemic inequity itself, that's where you get into this reification of whiteness, and yeah. you know, that, you know I, I pause a little bit. Well, and
0: ultimately, go ahead, go ahead. that way of thinking doesn't actually lead to solutions other than listen and obey, or, or I That's guess right. tithing. I, right. the, the only solution then is just a a, a blunt force uh, reparation, where you just deposit seventy percent of your income into all of the uh, you know historically marginalized. <laughs> yeah, groups. there's
1: all sorts of. By the way, I've worked in damages analysis when I was in the private sector. All sorts of problems that come up in uh, in trying to come up with valuation, uh, and it's very okay, very legacy. complex. Yeah. Um, Well, just trying to value, just trying to quantify it. It's very, very complex. But
0: one one sustained theme in everything that you wrote about or that you were saying is that there's this reduction of complexity, which which is which is a bad practice. It's it's a it's a poor intellectual habit to get into to reduce complexity. But they're trying to justify the reduction of complexity in order to reduce complexity in a certain way. And and so, what is the end goal that Robin D'Angelo, So far as you've been able to to garner, what is her end goal? Of, of I really don't this know. Stuff?
1: Actually, I was gonna. I, that's what I was gonna. I was gonna raise that question. You know, because well, I mean, and, you know, so there's a couple. You know, she says uh, quite often that you know anti racism work is never ending. It's con- it's yeah, constant. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, it never it never ends. So so there's that. Um, but the focus really seems to be on essentially, you know, inclusiveness, diversity and in so on. which of course in principle is all fine. I mean, who, who has a problem with that? Right. Um, but the issue is to, that the way that you do that is by taking down da dominance, by, uh, taking out. But, but know, the white... only way
0: that they can take down dominance is by asserting their dominance in the most fragile fashion yeah, imaginable. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, so um, they're,
0: they're just reasserting another dominant structure.
1: So, yeah. So, I mean, that is that the end goal? I don't know. Um, but this will take me – you were sort of directing me into the fourth critique, and I'll get through, which is implicit bias. This is crucial. This okay. is probably the crucial premise about – this is why she can say that systemic – inequities and disparities are in fact evidence of racism and why in fact we need to invest, why we need to acknowledge um, fragility and why we need to listen and why we need to consider impact and so on, right? Listening is, is sufficient. Impact is what is important. Racism is systemic. All of this is because of implicit bias. And the problem is not that, I'm not saying that implicit bias is not a thing. I'm not saying that implicit bias is not real, but what I am saying, and I'm still going, I'm pouring through this literature right now. That's my sort of current project. But okay. one thing that's clear when you read it is that the literature is very inconclusive about what implicit bias actually <laughs> is and how it leads to systemic outf- outcomes. Now there are papers that say, look, this is a this is a uh, lic- implicit bias is absolutely a thing, and in fact, you know in some sense they're right but you have to understand what they mean by that you know we don't want to get into all the complexity; we'll be here for hours but the problem is there are also lots of studies that uh that (coughs) have uncovered problems with the implicit association test moreover and i've been Mm -hmm. in corresponding with a psychologist on this um the test retest correlation uh is very low relative to other things. So, in other words, you take a test, you find some kind of, you know, result, but another test the, the, finds a, a slightly different result. But the correlation, you know, I think he says that uh, he typically sees like a 0. 0.4 correlation, which is very low to, say, 0. 0.7 or 0. 0.8. But the, ultimately, the point is it, and this just kind of goes – more generally to the so-called replication crisis in, in psychology, mm-hmm. it's very hard to draw, uh, General inferences, objective inferences from subjective what are ultimately what we 're talking about are introspective phenomena, which is what's going on in our minds so basically and as and this sort of came up when we we're talking about microaggressions, which is sort of a kind of implicit bias but the mm. the basic point is we really don't know as much about implicit bias as we think we do, and that's really the crucial point if you start reading this literature it's very inconclusive so that takes me, um, you know, that relates to the whole idea of socialization. She thinks she knows exactly how socialization works, but I argue that she doesn't. I think a large, I argue that a lot of us really don't. It's far more complex, um, and in part because she assumes that it relies ultimately on implicit bias, but we don't really have as good an understanding of implicit bias yeah. as she okay. says. Now, yeah. this takes us to uh, one of the most crucial, but also basic, basic, basic problems is that she constantly says there's no such thing as an objective neutral reality the first question that should occur to anybody is is that an objective statement in itself and if so then what the hell we've got a basic inconsistency and a demonstration of really incompetence with logical reasoning and by the way that reminds me I should bring up that we were talking about Ruth Frankenberg earlier Um, And let me bring up – I'm going to bring up the quote because she quotes it over and over and over. Um, I'll get it. Don't worry. Just bear with me. (laughs) Um, uh, It's right here. (coughs) Um, Let's see. Um, I'll find it. Um, Yep. So whiteness studies begins with the premise that racism and white privilege exist in both traditional and modern forms. And rather than work to prove its existence works to reveal it. Now, in other words, they assume it assumes the conclusion in advance and simply goes about trying to reveal it. That is circular reasoning. So that brings us back to this point. doesn't seem to have a very good facility with logical reasoning. Uh, One moment, one moment.
0: It, it, point four was implicit bias uh yes it doesn't okay so so basically what she's trying to assert is an explicit bias in point five right like this Uh, is an explicit bias that that are you talking about objectivity and neutrality well the whole objectivity thing is that i'm projecting (laughs) i'm projecting my bias onto reality
1: yeah i guess you could think of it like that yeah, yeah, I guess that... Yeah, I guess but at
0: least she's being her, honest but, and just just saying that she's explicitly biased to her well, conclusions from the get-go.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. So um, so I thought you were talking about white people, like when she talks about, because for her, objectivity and individually are ideologies, and that's a yeah. sort of a form of in, implicit bias. Um, and what you're, I guess what you're saying is she's sort of admitting, fessing up to an, uh, an I- explicit bias. Well, um, I don't think that she would say it's a bias. She would say that's just fact, that's reality. Well, that's,
0: that, well, if she said that there's no such thing as objectivity, there's no such thing as reality, therefore there's only bias, therefore her bias is explicit. I so mean, so a lot of it, a lot are. of it, yeah, a lot of it is is preemptive defensiveness and... and and that's the whole thing. Like she, she's beating you to the punch with defensiveness by already assuming that you're going to be defensive. She's already yep. beating you to the punch with objectivity or argument by already trying to undermine objectivity. But the question remains: is that why do people adhere to this if it makes no sense whatsoever? If you actually uh, look at it, it makes no sense. But it's still it's it's constructed in such a way that the yarn holds to a globe. We're not talking about a completely flat earth, but there's this. There's this, uh, there's this irreality that's holding itself together and that is bringing adherence to itself. So ultimately, it's a psychological solution because the the, the logical pointing out all these fallacies is only going to evoke more of the psychological, uh, phenomena that reinforce this behavior.
1: I mean, I, I, I don't have anything really to add to that. Um, I guess the, uh, I, I'm just trying to, uh, engage this on the merits you know yeah. and um
0: i appreciate and, that i'm just trying to say that that ultimately it's not it, it's it's uh power in the world is not based on the merits and she says explicitly she's bearing that there's no merits to this and that there's no way but, to evaluate it
1: by yeah. its merits but it's well, still I mean, she has would an have... adherence to it yeah by the way uh that reminds that makes me think of uh toby young who's uh one of the editors at Quillette, um, his father okay. is actually the person who came up with the term meritocracy and he's a- actually, oh. was made, yeah, it was actually, uh, it That's was nepotistic. A, yeah. Well, it was actually apparently in his book, uh, how to lose friends and alienate P- people, um, which is a good, <laughs> funny book by the way. And I recommend it, but, uh, I practice um, this all the time on social media. Yeah. It, uh, apparently it was, um, Ah uh, meant as a ter- term of damnation. It was you know he was more of an egalitarian, and so that what the problem with meritocracy is, it would give the sort of uh, nobla, uh, the the rich or the aristocrats or whatever, it would remove their guilt because it would make them feel like they had adver- earned their riches and that sort of thing. So he had a problem with that. But anyway. Um, with respect to the fragility stuff you know D'Angelo is likely to say that meritocracy is sort of a um a a, a, a shibboleth of some sort because you know uh, because of these sort of structural factors that affect um, you know outcomes um so I guess you know we you know listening is not sufficient uh intent and impact both need to take be taken into account Um racism, uh, is site typological reductionism. I would argue is that by arguing that simply systemic disparities, um, uh, you know, it redefines racism or confuses racism with the legacy. And by the way, I, sh- well, I don't want to keep doing these de- tangents, um, implicit bias, uh, confusing objectivity and neutrality, um, <sighs> methodologically, uh, much of what she says is assertion and in some sense is very speculative because it's based on qualitative distillations of her anecdotal experience, you know, yeah, being in yeah. focus groups and, and and classrooms and whatever. There's okay. no – I have read her – there's no sense of her and herself having, undertaking rigorous hypothesis testing. She cites – you know, she f- cites to a fair amount of work, but she herself is never rigorously tested – a hypothesis
0: so and it seems like sorry to interrupt it seems like yep. her qualia which is based on anecdote resonates with other people's qualia it's basically a sophistic rhetorical maneuver to invoke certain feelings within the audience which empowers people of a certain uh, ethnic or racial disposition and in and, and disempowers people in a very empowering way, I guess that's what she's offering disempowerment in the most empowering way, like that that whole race to dinner thing where you can have these uh, black women come to your dinner party and and sell you Tupperware dildos and white gilt. right? there's this whole there's this whole contingent that loves this. and unfortunately, this contingent that loves this is in positions of power because they're all a bunch of bureaucrats,
1: yeah, I'm not aware of that particular thing that you mentioned, but um. Yeah, so uh, there's there's a complete absence of rigid, rigorous hypothesis testing, no falsification, and that and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's not rigorous is really uh, the main point. And so that brings us to this idea that what she's ultimately offering are doctrines, there, you know, theories, you know, uh, not Preceptive. not theory as something that can be tested, but theory as a kind of uh, a way of looking, a reframe, a narrative. Um, it's uh it's a sort of system mental scheme of bias or that's how she understands theories yeah. we have these internal maps that we use to navigate the world, but i you know as i've written time and again like i think she has a real misunderstanding of what theory is and so on but those yeah. are pretty much um oh and then of course there's the genetic fallacy which is um which kind of brings us back to square one in a sense by saying that um you know by arguing by, by subjecting this to any kind of scrutiny, um, you know, just having a question that you're fragile. But the the real point here is, is identity politics, um, which is that uh, viewpoint diversity is the same thing as sort of group diversity. Um, and that what I have often heard – so, for instance, I have ar- argued to somebody that I know, a relative, that um, – She's writing about critical theory in her book on social justice, about Horkheimer and Adorno and so on, and that um, they had the skepticism of the scientific method and so on, which they didn't, by the way. Um, uh, but that, you know, the, the, the point is that what she was saying is that what they questioned is whose rationality uh, and whose objectivity. That's what they were critiquing. and in fact that's not what they were critiquing that is not what Adorno and Horkheimer were critiquing what they were critiquing was the instrument how do I say instrumentation instrumentalization I have a slight speech apraxia still lingering from the surgery Um, that uh Reason had been instrumentalized by the scientific apparatus of capitalistic society. I can flesh that out and so on. Uh-huh. But anyway, my yeah. basic point is that she misconstrues the fundamental thing that she's trying to say. So I'm making this point to somebody who's very much in sort of the social justice mind. The basic response is that's according to you so the issue is you're not evaluating what i'm saying on the merits you're 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 invalidating by the fact that on the basis of the fact that i said it and this gives rise to a basic distinction between truth and perspective you know okay. so you're saying i have a perspective on this matter and you you're saying that what i'm 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 proposing i'm positing a a, a claim that i take to be true and you're saying that it's only my truth but it's not Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. What I want to illustrate is the genetic fallacy. And the point is that my claim that she misconstrues a basic claim of the critical theorists is being evaluated in the following sense. That's according to you. That is, the merit of the claim depends on the fact that I'm saying it, not on the logical grounds, the factual grounds. (laughs) It's the fact that I'm saying it. That's what's called the genetic fallacy.
0: No, so, it's, it's called like the, the, the playground
1: fallacy. That's what a four-year-old says. Jeez. I mean, I suppose so, yes. But, you know, you could, you know, the, the funny thing about this is that you could actually, you know, we've talked for an hour or so, or almost an hour, I don't know. But um, you can basically throw this all back at the D'Angelo by saying, this is just all according to you. Why now, should I take it seriously? Just you. It's just your truth.
0: Which goes back to that she is pleasing people to very steep monetary gain for herself. She's pleasing people who have really
1: a... I, I, I had wondered about that. I mean I no, she probably sells on books
0: you know, she sells a lot of books. Her speaking fees are in the tens of thousands. Um, I don't have the exact number, but they are in the tens of thousands. Um, unless she's, Well, you know, uh,
1: you know, you've been bringing, you brought ages. this question about as to why it resonates so much. And I don't yes. really have a good... I mean, I, I, I don't want to really get it. I mean, the best okay, I can okay. think
0: of... But, but you, we can answer this insofar as it disresonates with you. It, what about <laughs> it irks you? let's get just the pure qualia your bi- biography your anecdotal experience why do why do you dislike this, this on an aesthetic or a personal level
1: um I just think it's a very weak theory I don't uh- think it explains very much i think uh it's based uh on misunderstandings of a lot of concepts okay.
0: um,
1: I don't think it's very rigorous um, okay I think it 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 uh, um it's very it's almost intellectually dishonest, um, and that that's that's the whole fragility trap thing. Um, but ultimately, I just think it's very weak because it's uh, not rigorous. Um, she she asserts she doesn't argue, um, mm-hmm. and I mean just go through the implicit bias literature. Uh, you know, sure, implicit bias is is a thing that we need to think about, that we need to study, that we need to understand. But as far as I can tell, psychologists don't have any c- consensus understanding of this. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, microaggressions. I mean, we're talking about something that's 10 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like this thing is in its is embryonic. And all of a sudden, it's just got this cultural currency, you know, so. Um, so yeah, I just think it does not hold up as a matter of, uh, under scrutiny, okay. and I guess if you want to say it, why it it, it irked me. I mean, I mean, I try not to get really emotional about it, but I will say that. But
0: <laughs> well, don't be st- okay. Let, let's just suspend what, your stoicism for just one moment. Yeah,
1: well, I'll tell you what got me started on this is was um, I, I was talking to you know a relative of mine who is really steeped in this kind of stuff, and I remember just sending an article I'd written for good Mudden project i think and um you know just about you know that the uh confirmation bias might be a problem you know and in, in 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 some of the stuff that goes on in social justice uh, activism and then maybe something else i said and the only response i was getting was why are you so fragile why are you so fragile why are you so fragile And at first I was like, well, you know, because I think this is not a good line of reasoning. I think that there's some cognitive errors going on. And all I kept going was why so fragile. And so I just realized it's something really wrong with that. Um, And that's when I started looking into this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's just, I guess it's a bigger problem to figure out. We can, I guess, I guess I'm trying to make this talk and your work do more than it Can possibly do, the your work shores up a very solid argument so that people can work through this and purge it, or or uh, kind of locate why they think, think it's weak because you're doing all the work to just show rigorously why it's weak. Right? But there's more work to be done to to ask why people are attracted to the weakness of this argument.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I agree, and um, at this, I mean, you know, grievance studies. Uh, I think that they. Um, uh probably tapped into some insight on that. Um are you talking about uh, uh,
0: Lindsay Pluckrose and Bagozia? Yeah, you
1: know, okay. I mean just just yeah. the idea that um that it's fueled by in some sense a kind of um what do you what did Nietzsche call it? Uh Ressentiment Ressentiment or something. Yeah. Right. um something like that. But I mean, it's unlike D'Angelo, I'll be the first to admit that I'm purely speculating at this point. It's something I really okay. have to think through. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, if I had to take a guess at the moment, I would say that the grievance study stuff really tapped into something that's, um, that helps to explain why it resonates so much. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, you look at my, Mike Nana's videos, right? Or you look at what you know, I mean, from evergreen, um, hmm. I mean, or really, I mean, go back to reification. Look what Shakespeare sh- showed us in, um, in, uh, Coriolanus, uh, basically mob rule when the mob sort of takes over. I mean, it's, um, hmm. uh, you, um, you just, you're not, you're, 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 how do I say, um, you're suspending your, 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 your facility to think through this independently, to do your thinking for yourself, and you sort of... Uh, I'm pausing us for, for a reason here. Um, I the reason is I, I, I really want to make this point uh, uh, clear. Um, I'm thinking of people that I know Uh, And I say people plural because I'm not thinking of only one person Uh, going back to high school. And I'm thinking these are people who um, I never thought of as, you know, people who are like willing to do the hard work um, logically. To really do the research, but would be very susceptible to sort of catching on to a um, a bandwagon, if you will. And it's not to say that they don't sincerely believe in the cause, but very be but become very susceptible to becoming part of that cause under the name of something like justice, right? I mean, the whole idea is is social justice. Who could be against social justice, right? And then. Um, Ah, yeah. Okay. So I'm sorry. I was a little tangential there. But uh, this brings me back to a um, uh, an argument that I've been working through in my head. So I, I think there's a history to this. Okay. And part of it has to do with the whole postmodernism. And you, you hear about, you hear Lindsay on um, Twitter, you know, talking about applied postmodernism. And so there's a there's an intellectual history to this, right? The idea of postmodernism, and and I'm speaking loosely, obviously. You wanna, you're, wanna, you're, you know, again, in keeping with the sort of integrity, integrity of intellectual inquiry, we ultimately want to parse through all the nuances here. But um, the idea is, is a discourse, um, power, dominance, narratives, and all that. Uh, come out of the work of like Foucault and 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 Derrida and whatever, and actually it's it's more complicated. I, there's like four ways to read Ruf, Ruf, Foucault and whatever. But the idea of yeah. Tom dominance narratives has a history. Now similarly, in the 60s, you have lots of activism, and they were trying to change society in all sorts of ways. The 60s and 70s was all about activism, and then I would argue that sometime in the 80s, you know, you had a backlash. Reagan comes into office, and so on. Yeah. Meanwhile, a lot of the, a lot of activists were sort of going into the universities, and they were sort of following this sort of Antonio Gramsci script. And Gramsci is a so-called neo-Marxists who talked about so-called war of position, that what you ultimately need to do is you need to take over, assume control of sort of institutions so that you can then become the progenitor of norms and and so on. And so essentially, I mean, I I feel a little grubby saying this, but sort of like a takeover of the universities, if you will. But you know, it's it's not so conspiratorial as that. It's more of like a movement that kind of stems from the '60s and even before that, if you really want to go through it. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with the end of the Cold War, uh, you no longer have this sort of unifying force of like anti-Soviet or just a Cold War, whatever. Okay. Meanwhile, there was sort of a lot of. Uh, the rise of sort of leftist liberal trends in the university. and then you have books written by like uh, Harold Bloom and, and Schlesinger and basically expressing concerns about the rise of political correctness and identity politics. and then you have sort of a growing divide between the right and the left, which begins we begins with like Rush Limbaugh and Bill Clinton and so on. And then you know for a while this was all channeled through the Iraq war and so on. Mm-hmm. but basically basically a polarization. Um Now, uh, hmm. I hesitate to, to talk more about this because I'm thinking about this. A lot of other people are thinking about this, and a lot yeah. of people have very different well,
0: let's you know, let's restrain it to what you were speaking about yeah. about people who were susceptible to yep. bandwagoning.
1: Yeah, yeah, so like so you have um,
0: a lot but, of people yep. not dis not yeah. unified, so disunified.
1: <laughs> so what I'm yeah. saying is there's a history to this, and it's all led us to where we are now. Yeah. Now, in terms of delineating all the nuances, We'll put, we'll put that aside. But what it has led to is a kind of the, what we know as of as the sort of social justice movement, right? Now, what is that movement again? We'll put that aside because, and I, I acknowledge it is all very complex. But hmm. we've arrived at a point where the narrative now, the discussion, the conversation revolves around a kind of. Um, understanding of racism as a systemic, as a phenomenon of systemic disparities. And that those systemic disparities, we all can acknowledge. They're all, you know, just look at the data clear as can be. But we have also sort of come, arrived at this sort of understanding of how those things are sustained. And it has to do with this sort of reification of whiteness. The idea is that you—it's it's no longer about sort of widening the circle of inclusion. It's about decentering whiteness. That brings mm-hmm. us back to this reification thing. Decentering whiteness—the so-called centripetal ideology or discourse of whiteness—it only makes sense if there is, in fact, something called whiteness that lies at the center of our society. And lies at the center of what we are supposed to understand as a white supremacist society.
0: Well, But and those things are just code words. Whiteness, white supremacy is now just a code word for something else. Western. Well, there's
1: your reification fallacy. That's your reification fallacy. So whiteness is supposed to be an ideology, a discourse or whatever that centers everything into its own center. And it's... Manifested through these relationships of dominance,
0: yeah. but
1: of course what you're saying and what you're saying very reasonably, I think at least, is that whiteness is just a code word. It's an abstraction and the fallacy lies in the uh, in the sort of belief that it's infused embodied in us in books in institutions real things and we need so to root probably, it
0: out that's the only that's right. acceptable the fallacy solution.
1: or the, the, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness yeah. this idea now I mean look uh, one thing that we haven't really gotten into and we don't have to but you know D'Angelo really wants us to start with the idea that we have a so-called white racial frame that we we have been socialized with a with a racial frame and we just don't know it because part of our socialization is that we've been socialized to not know it and so on and so forth and you can unpack that in a lot of different ways I've tried to do that in my own mind but but really what the point here is to ultimately see this notion of whiteness as something that underlies at the core of our society um under underlies systemic disparities and my basic concern my my uh my concern in all this is that i just don't think that that's very i mean first of all it's based on a logical fallacy but also yeah. i just don't think that it's really uh clearly worked out um, Well,
0: okay and and because it's not clearly worked out it won't work out to anything clear like the result is not clear. Right.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm still going to, you know, look, uh, I, I am still open minded about this. And my study is mm-hmm. ongoing and I'm going through the literature. I've read uh, plenty of uh, papers. I mean, I think that there 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 is a lot of um, very uh, interesting claims uh, I've read. People like Lawrence Blum, John Powell, mm-hmm. Ruth, Fro- Ruth Frankenberg, um, uh, and you know a bunch of other papers. And so you know, this is an ongoing thing for me. I mean, I guess you could say in that sense I'm following D'Angelo's advice to mm-hmm. be open-minded mm-hmm. about this, right? Yeah. The problem is that I arrive at different conclusions as she does um, or at least different questions – And uh, and if I do that, then suddenly I'm no longer, or I'm suddenly falling. (laughs) I'm I'm so so suddenly fragile. You know, like, (laughs) like for instance, Coleman Hughes, right? Coleman Hughes, right? He makes a really good argument about the so-called systemic disparity. Is that the problem? Is that they apply it narrowly and not broadly, so that when disparities work one way which is you know look uh white people are more wealthy they get make more income they're at the top of silicon valley and so on and so forth right we all know that um so you have a systemic disparity but then when it works the other way they never invoke racism so for instance he cites this study um in the new york times uh talking about another study i guess where um Hmm. Uh, let me uh, bring it up. Hold on. But it basically, the, the the point was that what it ultimately showed was that um, conditional on parent parental income, black uh, women uh, either. Yeah, they're above. Uh, yeah, they either. They're doing uh, really well. Greater, um, I'll find it. Here it is. Uh, higher college attendance rates than white, un, white men and higher incomes than white women conditional on parental income. So there's a systemic disparity that runs the other way. And um, I mean, I can imagine what the response from D'Angelo or others would be. But the but as a as a purely logical matter, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, you're essentially uh, it's it's just not holding up. By the yeah. way, the cli- economist Raj Cherry, who's very big on inequality, uh, talks about effects of neighborhoods and how poor neighborhoods have a bigger effect on boys and girls. So that's another example. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yes, yeah, so that's all. So, yeah, I really think the reification fallacy is really central, uh, to understand. And, um, you know, I might not have, uh, I mean, the basic idea is what I said it is. Um,
0: yeah.
1: but working it out in terms of examples, I mean, that's something I'm still working
0: well, okay. The thing is, is that at least you're working things out. At least we're working things out. We might be completely wrong and fragile, but at least we're engaging with the material. I mean, maybe that's the only thing that we have to stand on. That that we don't need to claim authority, but we do claim interaction. At least we're working it out for ourselves. We're not learning. We are engaging in a conversation or a dialogue with this material. I guess that's all we can really uh put ourselves on at this point.
1: Yeah, um I mean that's that's all I ultimately la- ultimately ask for, but um you know I'm not confident um you know, I guess uh when you ask why does this resonate? One of the things that I was talking about earlier that Angelo says is the way that she sort of uses language in all this, you know, so that if you are, quote-unquote, defensive, you're essentially engaging in white racial bullying and that sort of thing. Um <coughs> And I can understand why she says that, but I also say that she says that because she's so indoctrinated in her own doctrines that she's just, you know, she's sort of made up a whole new language for herself. But that kind of language really resonates. If you try to talk about this in terms of, well, there is a distinction between objectivity and neutrality, and that objectivity is about rigorous evaluation and and hypothesis testing and falsification and, and so on. But and nobody's really saying that that's the same thing as neutrality and blah, blah, blah. Talk about popper and talk about uh, implicit bias and all that. People don't want to hear that. When you talk about, well, uh, you've just got, you know, I am white and I am a racist and I need to understand what you are telling you. That resonates. So it's sort of it's almost in some sense a linguistic thing.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Well, thanks a lot, Jonathan. You, you really poured your knowledge into my head. I do want to have you back on to talk about economics, because that's your actual originating thing. But maybe you've moved on into the realms of implicitness and, and no, fragility. No, I'm
1: still uh, – <laughs> I, I just got into this because I, I, I just I, – I mean, really, just intellectual curiosity, but also I really thought that it was just bad thinking. I mean, and, 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 and and if it were just bad thinking, I mean, you just kind of do away with it, but it's had such a huge influence. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately I am, you know, economics is where I'm trained and, uh, um, you know, I, I write a few articles on economics here and there, so.
0: I really appreciate yeah. the work you're doing, and, and thanks a lot for coming on. This has been yeah, fun. Yeah,
1: sorry, sorry it went over a little bit, but I appreciate <laughs> being on, and uh, I probably tried to dominate a little bit, but I, it was just a lot I wanted well, to say.
0: You know what? You know, you just, you just proved you're whiter than I am, uh, just, just purely by word count in this conversation. Uh... <laughs> <This got laughs> that really makes it.
1: A All right, well, sorry, I won't take up any of your time. Thanks a lot, ben- Benjamin. All right, Jonathan. You have a good night. Okay, you too.
0: All right, ciao.